Well, good morning, everyone. It's uh, great to see you here this morning. It's great to be here together, isn't it, as God's people gathered together. Uh, thanks, Huey, for opening God's Word, and can I encourage you to keep it open? You also, if you've got one of these on the back, uh, is a little outline of where we're going this morning that will hopefully be helpful if you want to jot anything down there. Uh, if you've got any questions, uh, please put them on the, on the back of your Connect card so we can get to those at some point as well. Well, much has uh, been made about the significant decline in Christianity uh, reported in the recent census data. Uh, many commentators seem to have relished the opportunity to highlight it. Uh, it appears to be possibly, I think, the most talked about feature of our latest census. I don't know if it's because that's the kind of thing I look at or whether it just seems to keep coming up in feeds in front of me all the time. But Christianity is now a, mon a minority uh, celebrated by many, uh, not just in practice, but also in the way that people identify themselves. So let me ask you, how are you feeling about being a Christian in Australia today? And can I just say, it's more than just about uh, boxes ticked on a census survey. It's about changes we're seeing taking place in our society day after day. Uh, even a self-confessed Christian prime minister can do little to stem the flow. See, there isn't even a, uh, the will in our parliament to protect religious freedom. Values we hold dear, uh, that we once took for granted, like the sanctity of life, faithfulness in marriage, the preciousness of family, the beauty of men and women made in the image of God, the telling of truth in the public square, they're constantly being eroded. Our society is being de-Christianised. Cancel culture has censored Christians in the public square. We've become tentative about expressing ourselves. Our kids are being shaped by anti-Christian causes. How are you feeling about being a Christian in Australia today? You know, I was speaking with someone from our church just a few weeks ago who said to me, I've never felt more anxious about living in our world. Now, maybe that's how you're feeling this morning. It's certainly how I sometimes feel, which is why I'm so thankful, really, and I think it's just so timely that we'll be working through this incredibly encouraging book of 1 Peter this term. Because Peter is addressing Christians who are living in a world where they are marginalised and mistreated. And he reminds us that we don't need to be anxious. But instead we have every reason to stand firm in our faith, but even more so that we have every reason to rejoice. And so let's see why that is as we look through uh, 1 Peter uh, today, but also as we get, get going. But before we do that, let's begin again by praying and asking God to help us see the truth in his word. I know we've already prayed. We can't do it enough. Let's come before God. Thanks, Father, for uh, the great privilege of having your word, that you're a God who speaks, that you're a God who loves, a God who is concerned for this world that you made, that belongs to you. And so, Father, we pray for the encouragement that comes from your word this morning. Please speak to our hearts and our minds as we reflect on what you say to us, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, 1 Peter um, is a letter. We've seen that already, haven't we, in a number of ways through the kids' talk. But it's a letter written by the Apostle Peter. It's written to churches that are scattered throughout Asia Minor, or what we now call Turkey. You can see it there on your map. 
uh, up the top there on the right-hand side. Uh, and it's written to Christians who are doing it tough. Uh, they're facing opposition and persecution because of their Christian faith. And it's kind of knocking them around. And Peter is writing to urge them to stand firm as Christians. Now, Peter himself tells us at the end of his letter that that is why he's writing to them. So if you uh, flick over to chapter 5 in your Bibles, or you can just look at the screen if that's easier, but uh, chapter 5 in your Bibles, have a look at verse 12. Peter says, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Now, in a moment, uh, at the beginning here of, of 1 Peter, he's going to remind us, uh, sorry, remind them as well as us, what the true grace of God actually is. But before he does that, he reminds them that they've been chosen by God for something strange. Now, have a, look, a quick look at what that is. We're going to pick it up right at the very beginning of 1 Peter. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now that is right from the beginning, Peter reminds them of his credentials. It literally says, Peter, apostle of Jesus Christ. It's not that he's just one of the apostles, it's that he speaks here of his apostolic authority. Apostle simply means a sent one or a messenger, but in this, and in this case, Peter is sent by or sent on behalf of Jesus Christ. And so as an apostle, Peter speaks with the authority of Jesus Christ. He writes, notice, continue on, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. Now, Peter puts two very strange words together to describe those that he's writing to. That is, notice there, he calls them elect exiles. Or perhaps you could say, chosen outcasts. And Peter kind of links together a, a very positive term and a very negative term. They're elect, that is, they're chosen by God, as all Christians are, but they're chosen to be exiles or outcasts. It's possible the term is not that strong. It might be better to say that they're chosen to be strangers in this world. Now, on the surface, Peter may be referring to Jewish Christians who have had to leave their homeland and, and settle as sojourners or uh, strangers in another land that's not their home and where they are feeling alienated. But more importantly, Peter is talking about their spiritual alienation or their spiritual strangeness as both Jewish and Gentile Christians. A, a Christian's homeland is the new creation, often just summarised as heaven in the Bible. It's the new creation, the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. We're citizens of the new creation and therefore Christians are like refugees or strangers in this world. That's our identity. Christians are elect exiles, chosen by God, but strangers in the world. And, and if we're at home with God, then we're not going to be at home in this world. On the other hand, of course, if we are at home in this world, then we're probably or possibly strangers to God. Let's keep reading because we're elect exiles, verse 2, uh, picking it up there. 
according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. There's so much actually going on in these couple of verses here. It's God's initiative to set his love upon us, to forgive our sins, to welcome us into his new covenant family, the new people of God, the church. That is, he's not a distant God, God, he is our father. And we have become his holy or his set apart people, because that's what holy means. The church is precious to God. We are a privileged people. And so we're chosen, but we're also strangers. Why? Well, we're strangers here for a purpose. Notice what he says there. For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. See, we're set apart as strangers in this world to live in obedience to Jesus Christ. And what that means is what we're going to see right throughout 1 Peter. We have been given new life. We have a a new father. We belong to a new family. And we have a new eternal future that shapes the way that we live today. Now, we actually get a bit of a summary of what that life looks like over in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Again, it should be on the screen there for you. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. See, Peter is saying our lifestyle matters to God and it leads people to be saved. And so Peter reminds these struggling churches of their identity as chosen strangers and their purpose to live such good lives in this world. In other words, as Christians, we've already said it today, as Christians, we are different. So be different to make a difference. Or as we've put it in our series title there, live grace fully. But what incentive is there to live such good lives, to live gracefully that we are called to? Well, Peter calls it the true grace of God. And in these next few verses, he reminds them exactly of what that is. What is the true grace of God? Let's just pick it up there at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. See, God is uh, the giver of living hope to his people. Uh, in, In his famous account of life in Uh, World War II concentration camps, Man's Search for Meaning, the book, Uh, the psychiatrist Viktor Frankl observes that the prisoner who had lost faith in the future was doomed. With a loss of belief, uh, he also lost his spiritual hold and went into a complete physical and mental decline. He said that it is a peculiarity of man 
that he can only live by looking into the future. And so Frankel identifies hope as a vital quality of human life and the Apostle Peter agrees, notice. With his readers facing persecution and abuse as part of everyday life, how does he encourage them not to despair? Well, he reminds them of their future hope. They have been born again. And as a result, they have a new hope, a new family, a new direction and a new destiny. See, our human birth to human parents is a life that inevitably ends in death. It's a life and an earthly inheritance that perishes. It wears out. It doesn't last. It's a life that is defiled by broken relationships, by failing health, by human evil. It's a life that fades. See, the human story is is one that always ends in death. It, It never lasts, no matter what we achieve in this life. But God does something remarkable. That is, he gives a new birth and a new inheritance. And notice that it's God who does this for us. I mean, see verse 3 again? According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. See, if you're a Christian, that's God's good work in you. You can't cause yourself to be born again any more than you could cause yourself to be born the first time. It's because of God's love and God's mercy that you can be born again and have this living hope. And so if you want to be born again, if you want to have this new life that God is offering and you don't yet have that, then you've got to ask God to do it for you. So the way that he has made it possible is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Death is the uh, the greatest intrusion upon life. And so the only hope is for a resurrection. Your new life is because of Jesus' life. His resurrection is the reason and the proof of our resurrection. And our new birth is to a new life and a new inheritance that will never perish, spoil or fade, notice. And the one who made it possible is both guarding it and is guarding you and me for it. That is, our inheritance is kept in heaven for us until Jesus returns when he will bring our inheritance as part of the new creation. And in the meantime, as you trust in God, God is holding on to you until the time comes for this reality to be seen by by everyone. See, how are they, how are we, going to stand firm in the trials that they're facing and live such good lives that cause others to glorify God. How are they going to do that? Well, they need to remember their future hope. We need to remember our future hope. But don't misunderstand the concept of hope here. I mean, Peter's not talking about the kind of wishful thinking in our experiences of life that often disappoint us. It's not the kind of nervous hope I had when I asked Leonie to marry me. Uh, It's not the kind of forlorn hope that Wild Street AM will one day win the Doyle Silverman Cup. It's not the hope that parents have that their children will be okay. See, often our hopes aren't, are quite hit or miss, aren't they? But the hope Peter is talking about is the confident and certain hope 
assurance that God will fulfill his plans. See, God has already raised Jesus from the dead. We already are born again. And our inheritance is already being kept for us. See, no wonder Christians should rejoice. I mean, have you, have you got what Peter is telling you here? If your trust is in Jesus, then this is all yours. It doesn't matter what is going on in your life. This is something that you can rejoice in. Now, I've, I've spent a, a bit of time on that point. Let me uh, try and go a little bit quicker from here, if I can. As Peter goes on, we see that not only do they have a hope to rejoice in, but they also have a faith that is genuine. Uh, let's just pick it up there at verse 6. He says to them, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, Peter's encouragement to rejoice isn't because he's living in fairyland. Peter knows the difficulty of their daily lives. He's no doubt experiencing similar trials himself. He knows daily life is full of struggles that are causing them grief. But compared to, the, to their inheritance in the new creation, they're only for a little while, he says. See, Christians are the chosen people of God, saved and kept secure, heading for a glorious inheritance where we will share in the glory of Christ himself. But in the meantime, we are strangers in this world and the pathway to that inheritance will likely involve suffering and trials. And it's a theme that Peter constantly reminds them of. In chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 12, he says, Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Or over in chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, uh, he says that the suffering of Christians is a worldwide phenomenon. Or in chapter 2, verse 21, he says, To this you were called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. You know, we've been called to share in the glory of Christ. But as we head to this glorious inheritance, we're travelling in an unsafe world. See, Peter doesn't really say what kind or how serious these trials are, but they're the kind of everyday trials that these people are facing. But either way, he wants us to see, uh, he wants us to see them as only lasting for a little while when compared to the eternal glories that await us. And so our hope in Christ points us beyond our trials, beyond despair, and yet the other thing to notice is the purpose of trials in the Christian's life. So notice the so that there in verse 7. Uh, trials in the Christian life are so that our faith might be tested and found to be genuine. Now the analogy of gold being tested by fire here is a, is a helpful one. Uh, when gold is tested by fire, it's refined. Uh, all the impurities are burned away and the genuine article remains. And it's similar with our faith, which is much more precious than gold, uh, Peter says here. See, the trial is often the place of God's greatest work in us. See, if God takes you through a dark time, there is still hope because God has a purpose for it. 
He's doing something special for you. He's doing something special in you. He's testing the genuineness of your faith. And he's purifying you for his purposes. And there's nothing more precious, can I say, than a genuine faith. Now, ultimately, it leads to a love and a belief that is secure. Look at verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You see, Peter contrasts the past and the present with the future. They had not, yet, they had not seen Jesus. They did not presently see Jesus, but they will see Jesus and receive the salvation that he has won. Of that, Christians can be sure. And it actually fills them with an inexpressible joy. Uh, you see, our, our relationship with Jesus is a joy that we can't even put into words, Peter says here. Peter doesn't urge them to be joyful. It's just simply a stated fact. I don't need to have seen Jesus to love him. I don't need to see him now to somehow believe in him. And in that sense, we're no different to Peter's readers. When Peter saw Jesus, Peter hung out with Jesus, he heard him speak, he watched him heal sick people, he watched him cast out demons and manipulate nature. He was there when he died on the cross and he saw him after he rose from the dead. Peter loved and believed Jesus. And if you and I had lived when Peter lived, then we could have seen him as well. But it's not necessary for us to have seen Jesus physically to know and love and be filled with joy because of the salvation that is won for us by dying and rising again. See, the day is coming when Jesus will ultimately be revealed. Every eye will see him. But in the meantime, we have the assurance that comes from the past and is fulfilled in the present. We have been saved. We've been born again. And in verses 10 to 12, Peter reminds his readers that they are part of something much bigger. That is, their salvation that has been won by Jesus was foretold many years earlier by the Old Testament prophets. We've just seen it, haven't we? We've just been working through the book of Isaiah. We've seen how God foretold the coming of his saviour. And so even though they... The prophets of old didn't understand fully exactly when and how Jesus himself would suffer and then rise to glory. They knew that they were announcing it for the benefit of those who would come after Jesus. That's what we see in verses 10 to 12 there. Those who would hear the good news and be saved. See, Jesus didn't come and die and rise to life again unexpectedly. That was always God's plan announced well before Jesus was even born. It was done, and we're told it was done for the benefit of all believers after the time of Jesus. Why? So that our faith in Jesus can be certain and so that our hope of sharing in Christ's glorious inheritance is sure. You see, no wonder we rejoice. What God has done for us even excites the angels. Did you notice that in verse 12? Well, so what? You've always got to ask the so what question, don't you? When God has done all these wonderful things for you and me, for his church, we have so much to rejoice in now. 
So much that is exciting that lies ahead. So what does that mean for life now? Well, verse 13 begins to tell us. See verse 13? Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, the therefore that begins, verse 13, looks back at all that God has done and says, therefore, this is what you should do in response. Our response is going to go beyond verse 13. We're going to see it throughout the rest of 1 Peter. But this is where we start. Therefore, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you, to us. Is your hope, sorry, if your hope is fully on God's grace, then it's not somewhere else. Nor is your hope divided. See, Christians don't hedge their bets. They don't live partly for the future and partly for this world now. Their hope is set fully, completely, unswervingly on the gracious blessing of God that comes to us when Jesus returns. Remember our privileged status as elect exiles. What is it? God has chosen us to be his people. He's set us apart for Jesus. He's given us new birth. That is, the church is the newborn people of God. We have an inheritance that is Christ and is bound up in Christ, whose praise, glory and honour we share. God is keeping our inheritance secure in heaven until Jesus returns with it. And he is keeping us safe and secure for our inheritance. In the meantime... He's testing and refining our faith even as we are receiving the salvation of our souls. See, here is the grace of God where you are to, to fully set your hope. Lay your foundations here. You know, the taller the building, the deeper you've got to send your foundations, right? The deeper that you sink your hope into the solid and sure grace of God then the more likely that you will grow to maturity in your faith. The more likely you'll stand firm in the face of trials. The more likely you'll be found living such good lives that others will watch you. They'll be caused to glorify God. You know, I began by asking how you're feeling about being a Christian today. And given the state of our world and our society's increasingly hostile attitude towards Christianity... Friends, I hope you're encouraged. We are joyful exiles. We rejoice to know that we are like refugees in this world. It's a strange subject, isn't it, to rejoice in. We don't rejoice in trials. They're not much fun. But we rejoice because we know Christ. We rejoice because we're receiving the salvation of our souls. Imagine that Jesus died yesterday, that he rose today, and that he was returning tomorrow. Now what are you going to do this afternoon? See, celebrate with me the inexpressible and glorious joy of believing and loving Jesus because he is our saviour. He is our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are a blessed people 
and we have so much to rejoice in, so much to be thankful for. Father, please, by your grace, make us a hopeful and a thankful people, a people who rejoices because we know that our sins have been forgiven. We know that we have new life because we've been born again. We know, Lord God, that you will keep us safe until the return of Jesus when our inheritance will join us. Father, we have so much to be thankful for. Let it be something that is seen in us as we live our daily lives so that as we live in this world, we will be different because we are different. And we pray, Lord God, that as we do that, it will make a difference in the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen.